This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Paul Bearer Hi. and special guest Mega Jimmy. Hello. Uh, today is May 13th, 2013. Uh, we are recording this interview at AKA Music, which I should point out is an excellent independent record store located here in Philadelphia. Uh, this is part of the Loud Fast Philly series. So uh, let's go down the rabbit hole and see what the rabbit's been up to. Uh, Paul Bearer. Uh, so tell me about young Paul Bear. Where where were you born and when? I was born right here in Philadelphia, circa 1960. Well, not circa 1960, actually 1960. Um, Northeast Philadelphia, little runty Jewish brat with a congenital hip dysplasia and overprotective parents, mm -hmm. a resentful father who just like you know most of his contemporaries in suburban Judea just like worked all the time to make things better for us. He was a great dad for a kid. I had a pretty idyllic childhood, very close to my brother, but I'm telling you, as far back as I can remember, I always felt like kind of an outsider, just out of step, outside looking in, just really couldn't really figure very much out. And my parents didn't really give me very much room to either. And, you know, in 70, they did what a lot of uh, their peers were doing. My dad, through his toil, um, did well, even though he was never around. What was his uh, line of business? He was a manufacturer's rep. Like, he would rep different companies and sell their products, you know, just like an agent. Mm -hmm. You know, he was on the road a bunch, too. But, you know, we were poor as shit growing up because my dad incurred his late father's debts, you know which was surprising considering my old man never stopped telling me what a brutarian his dad was, but mm -hmm. apparently it did not skip a generation. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so my dad was a cool dad for a little kid. My mom was overprotective. My Were you raised in, in the faith in, completely? Well, I mean, for, for my parents, it wasn't really about faith. They were reformed Jews, Judaism light, you know, mm -hmm. and it was more about values, perceptions, like, you know, they were giving rise to this new Jewish culture of the suburbs, the Jap culture, you know, entitlement, perception. It was, And I found it to be very tacky. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think my parents styled themselves to be elitists, but that's just how they condi got conditioned and programmed, you know? And, uh, and it was always really distasteful to me. It was like they were more concerned with how others perceived them and us than how we perceived ourselves, you know, they, you know, but um, my father worked hard. We moved to Cherry Hill when I was 10 and I was not happy there at all. I liked my life in Northeast Philadelphia, very small and insular. And it just uprooted me at a time when I was starting to really kind of gel, develop a little, you know, it was a turning point for me. And um, I did not like New Jersey. I did not like Cherry Hill. You know, everything was all spread out now, and like my, you know, in Philly you could be a little kid, and your world's not so microcosmic. And in in New Jersey, it was like I was just like, and uh, and like I said, my dad was very proactive with like making sure me and my brother had things. You know, that our life got better. We went to camp and all kinds of stuff. You know, but like. The more they became, you know, the more their affluence rose, the more they were concerned with status and perceptions, and it just never, never clicked with me. I was never about it. You know, I did really well in high school based on just raw genius, you know, because, you know. And that's to be modest. Right. Well, I mean, facts are facts. 
I mean, I've been tested by a school of doctors <laughs> at a doctor school. But anyway, you know, so I did really well in high school. But like, you know, around 16, 17, I met some people and I started hearing some different sounds. My brother, my older brother, was not turning me on to cool sounds. Like, I remember he had Humble Pie Rock in the Fillmore. I really liked that record. But a lot of that fucking... By the mid-70s, you know, 75, 76, he's like getting into that bullshit sound, like, you know, that Jackson Brown, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I mean, I'm not trying to be, like, totally dismissive, but, like, sort of basically, Canyon, bas like right, basically the sounds that a lot of, you know, punk progenitors list as, like, wanting to depart from. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and... Uh, and I wasn't sold. I, I was just so unhappy in my high school because of my, my hip dysplasia. I walked kind of awkwardly, but as I like to say, it took me a while, but I've managed to manifest it into a variety of stylish pimp strolls. <laughs> Were you given a lot of grief? For oh, fuck yeah, man. I was tortured in high school, bullied. I mean, like severely bullied. You know, high school was horrible to me. And it's like, and, um, the people that most appealed to me in high school were the burnouts, you know, the jocks, you know, like that had no, that was not for me. I tried to assimilate their world. I went out for the track team, just thinking, oh, peer group acceptance, some pussy, you know, party on Friday night, not home with a comic book jerking off, you know. So I tried out for the track team, and like the coach told me if they ever needed a javelin catcher, I was in. So, yeah, so I was really attracted to the burnouts with their fucking hot cars and their chicks, and they're like, they, they didn't give a fuck. They just did not give a fuck. They were living in the time, you know, chasing their thrills, and, you know, they weren't buying into this shit that my dad programmed me to. You get good grades, you go to good school, because it's like, that's how you make money. You know, money is how you measure value of anything. Mm -hmm. You know, that's my dad's world. My, my mom bought into it too, and my brother got caught in that trap. You marry a nice Jewish girl, you have a couple of kids, and you just fucking, it's what I call, you toil unto death. You just get on the wheel and occasionally it's like, my dad didn't drink. Mm -hmm. He should have. You know, he was never light, you know. He had a really good sense of humor. I got my kind of raconteur ship and like my fucking gift for gab from the old man because my mom's not very, you know, she's not educated. She's just kind of, you know, Jewish suburban mom, you know. And Are your parents both alive? My, my dad died on leap day of all days, which was pretty fucking cool. It means he's actually not dead. <laughs> Okay, I'll take that under advisement, but, you know, it's like now it's the funny thing is my dad was cremated and it gives me the room for that kind of like, you know, if I really need to like convince somebody of something that's definitely not, I'm like, I swear to God on my father's grave, he ain't in a grave, so there. Um, but anyway, so yeah, you know, so I start hearing shit, I start like, I'm trying to find the, the, the sounds that, like, not everyone's listening to. So, I, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not trying to say, oh, I'm so cutting edge. I'm, but, like, you know, I got hipped up to the Stooges and, and Lou Reed and, like, you know, that kind of, like, early stuff. Some of that garage stuff, the Sonics, while I was still in high school. And it was cool, you know. And then, you know, 
Well, you said you were you were drawn to the the burnouts. Were you interested Not, in the drug? Oh yeah, drug that's another thing. Well. I wanted to get high so bad because I was so uncomfortable in my own skin. I mean, I just felt so. I mean, outside I might have looked okay, but inside I was uncertain, cracked. You know, like just didn't know what the fuck I was, where I was supposed to go. You know, who I. You know, I was still. Paul Hyman then, you know, my God-given birth name, Paul Mitchell Hyman, mm -hmm. you know. I didn't realize that I was going to evolve into this kind of quasi-punk legend Paul Bearer, you know. But I did it so well, um, through no design or scheme at all. I mean, that's basically been part of my trip at all. It's like, just go, you know, ricochet, you know, see what, see what happens, see, you know, I mean, some people can set goals and achieve them, you know. I just did never figure it out. That just was never part of my lexicon, you know. I just wanted to thrill. Because my parents basically told me, you know, you know, basically that my lot was to achieve, breed, work, and die. Mm -hmm. And fuck that, you know. I was, you know, and for a while I played along with them because my dad controlled me with fear and, 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 and purse string, you know. My father culled his respect from me through fear and intimidation and emotional brutality. And I don't hate my old man. That's how he learned it from his old man. And sadly, I see my fucking brother passing that shit on. It troubles me. But anyway, so I'm starting to find some shit. So, um, so, so regarding the drugs, you said you had an oh, I wanted interest. To, I, yeah, you wanted I mean, to. Did you manage I, to? I used procure? to. I used to hang out at head shops at Echelon Mall. Remember shop called the East? Yeah, second floor. Yeah, and it was like this, like it was like this Pier One, like kind of tacky import export, and in the back, you know, black light posters, wizard shaped bong. bongs, you know. And I wanted to, like, I really like. I mean, my parents, pro, like my dad took me in the basement where all the serious talks happened. If we find out you're involved with drugs or using drugs, we'll have you arrested for your own good because we love you. You know, it's like, wow, man, that's fucking killer parenting. Thanks, man. And that was when I just wanted, and the more they want, didn't want me, like the more they programmed against me, it's like the more I wanted it, you know. The more my parents told me anything was bad, the more I wanted it, you know. So, so eventually you do come so to yeah, the equipment. So I find weed. Right before my senior year of high school, I finally get like people that are like, hey, you want to get high? And I'm like, yes, please. In perpetuity, ad nauseum, ad infinitum, please, high me up. You know, so I, I smoked weed. I returned senior year of high school. And I'd also met a guy who had done a semester abroad in Britain. You know, a college guy, I, I became friends with him, and he's the one that turned me on to all this early Britwave punk, you know, once it had crossed 77, you know, the pistols, the dam, the buzzcuts. I'm like, oh, fuck, this is so mighty. Right. You know, this is the soundtrack for me. Now. So this was clearly, yeah, this right. was yes. clearly the music. At this right. point, I, it, it, there was never a moment's doubt for me from the time I first heard what was going down with my initial indoctrination of the, the pre-stuff, the punk, you know, the, the Ramones. And, and this guy, Bruce, turned me on to all this shit. And man, that's when I started, you know, going for the look, too, you know, which in 77 was still pretty bold mm -hmm. in Cherry Hill East, you right, know. Right. So I go back my senior year with, like, an earring, you know, a punk, uh, like a day glow leopard shirt I got it. 
probably Zipperhead, were they open in somewhere on South Street, you know, maybe Rosebud or one of those old Philly punk stores. And what was Rosebud? I'm, I think I can't Rosebud remember. became Skins. Okay, right, right. Okay, um, but anyway, so I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm looking the look, I'm, I'm hearing the sounds, and I'm just like, and I'm polluting, you know, I'm just like, in my high school, I'm, it's like I was already like, aberrant and and abused and now i'm like fucking the turd and the fucking punch ball you know and i'm getting like devo faggot you know it's like my my torture is now implementally greater you know and so now are you finding other people who are like you not at all yet not at all and i wanted to obviously i mean if they were in cherry hill i hadn't found them because maybe neither of us had driver's licenses yet. right right so you couldn't so, yeah. you couldn't go so i was pretty iconic i couldn't yet i mean i was close so anyway you know um my dad wants me to go to college you know that's his agenda for me because it's now at this point where it's like i'm now discovering autonomy and I'm figuring out that my parents' aesthetics and values are decidedly not mine. Aesthetically, I like to call my parents lived in the Fiddler on the Roof, Barbara Streisand comfort zone. And if it got too far out of that, like, you know, some people's parents like, oh, my parents listened to the Beatles. You know, I was like, my parents were never that fucking hip. Steve and Edie, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, like, you know, it was a rite of passage that somewhere, you know, in my life, I had to go see Fiddler on the Roof at the Valley Forge Music Fair. As a young Jew. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was as mandatory as my motherfucking bar mitzvah, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's the world I grew up in, you know, tacky Judaism, you know, right. val you know, values and perceptions more than like anything soulful or anything resonant. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I tell my dad, I don't want to go to college. You know, I want to take a year off. I want to work some shitty job. I've now, like my senior year in high school, discovered the whole pantheon of drugs at this point. All of them. I mean, Cherry Hill East, like the fucking parking lot was like a goddamn Bedouin fucking drug bazaar. Within three months of first smoking weed, you know, I'd done LSD, I'd smoked dust, you know, pills, you know, it's like, it was all out there. Right. Now, did you favor certain, certain drugs over others? Yeah. I loved smoking weed and I loved taking speed. My mom, like all of her cronies had like, diet pills she's like, right, that right. fucking shit was like yeah little helper yeah and i would my mom you know she took no you know inventory of the stock so yeah man i fucking popped her fucking goofballs all through senior year and i was just and my parents had absolutely no idea because for all these years i had towed the line and been their unit and you know i was like subversive under the surface because i knew i had to live in their you know in their fucking their little weird world of you know Jews and values and, and it just so anyway so yeah man so I'm, I'm finding these sounds I found the dope I also found pussy you know which really was like I liked it a lot I really that was just like drugs I wanted pussy long right. before now, these, I, these were girls from your high school or no from, yeah. my first first girl I ever trysted with was just a big fat broad who basically took my cherry while I was just drunk and I was grateful for it you know it's like certainly wasn't like epic but like at least it sent You'd me like to, to give her a shout out here you fat Janice that's all I remember her name was Janice she was a friend's older cousin who basically took my cherry from me 
you know, I was like, okay, have it, you know. And so, but like, I knew I loved chicks, you know, I mean, I knew I was down with chicks for the longest time, you know. But like, I, you know, I had a few of those like early kids show me yours, show me mines, you know, but like, I wasn't like a fucking ass crusher in high school. I was a gimpy outcast, you know. But Did you like, find that when, you, when you've got a look that maybe you were a bit more appealing to women? You know, at that point, I really had no idea that I had moxie, that there was a certain breed of broads out there that found me kind of roguishly appealing, you know. I mean, I was still green as fuck, you know, really green. So I, 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 I tell my dad, you know, imagine how this goes over with all this preface I've given you, you know, is talking to me about going to school, and I've applied, and even, like, my, my, before I started getting doped up senior year, I crushed grades, I mean, all A's and B's, you know, without even fucking doing real much, you know. But, like, so I got into some real good colleges, and I, I told them, you know, and before I even realized I didn't want to go to college, I thought I would, be, you know, entertain the thought of being a writer. And, um, you know, so um, I tell my old man, first I tell him I want to go to school to be a writer, you know, writer and he's like do you know how many unemployed writers are oh, you're never gonna write the great american novel like dream crushing that's what he specialized in it's like because he had deemed you know he seized the helm of my starship and was captaining it and the, and the plan was coordinates were for me to go to school get a business degree and take over the old man's agency. You wanted to send the starship to your right. eyes. Yeah, so I basically, I knew I wasn't having that. I told my dad I wanted to take a year off, work some shitty job, and then go to England, because I wanted to go see the pistols, you know. You know, and uh, that wasn't happening, as I'm sure you could guess. Right, right. And so basically I'm like, all right, I'll go to school. I'll do what you want. And uh, I decided, I figured out, I'll be out of their house and they'll give me some money and I'll just see what happens. It's like, I'll go to school. If I could do it as easily as I did high school, I'll have at it. Right. At this point, my drug train's rolling now. Too, yeah, right. And they're still, they're still not aware of the fact like, that no, the, the train's rolling? No, my parents had no idea I did drugs for the longest time. They thought like I tried some weed, but the flotilla of other substances, particularly amphetamines, which I truly favored and had now developed a really great source of like, back then they called it what, hyperactivity, now it's ADD, and kids got fucking dexedrine or Ritalin. They've been giving fucking goofy kids speed forever so if you can find a kid with a brother who's like prescribed Ritalin who doesn't really like taking it because it's not fun unless you don't need it and uh, and uh, you know you find them you trade them stuff so I had a great source for speed once I got to GW I ended up going to George Washington the school my father and his consultant chose for me mm -hmm. because as long as my dad was gonna pay you know, he was going to dictate policy. Where is that school? George Washington, Washington, D.C. Okay, so okay. I go down to Washington, D.C., thinking I can f fuck my way through it and just figure something out. You know, I, it was just an escape route for me. Mm -hmm. And plus, I was pissed at my fucking dad, you know. I'm a fucking adult here, you know. Like, can I, like, please have some input into my life's course? or even my life's discourse, you right, know, right. but it's mine, you know. And um, so, um, 
From the time I got to GW, my fucking education was doomed. I knew, like, from the first accounting class and the first, I was like, this shit's fucking for dicks, you know? It's like, I don't want this. And even the classes I liked, it's like, I'm still a big outsider. It's still 78, but there is something going on in D.C. at this point, you know? I mean, sounds are starting to crack. You know, it's like, so I found the 930 Club, the original 930 Club, the one on 930 and F, 930F Street, you know, it was near my college, I could walk there, so I started, like, getting in there, I mean, I saw the Bad Brains real early, I saw Black Flag, and I was like, holy shit, I mean, this is fucking, and I managed to, like, hang out in college for a couple of years, like, really amazingly underachieving, like totally non-committed, like totally just like trying to fuck my dad like he fucked me. It's like, I'll do better, I'll do better. It's like, oh, you know, like, you know how much money it costs me? It's like, no, because you never let me have any of my own money. I have absolutely no concept of money other than that you can get dope and fucking booze and thrills with it, you know? Punk I imagine rock. there was a fair bit of that in Punk rock. Well, there was, but the college chicks wouldn't fuck me. Not my freshman year. You know, it's like, but by the time my sophomore year rolled around, 79, the the wave was starting to hit. People were starting to become aware of punk rock. And cities, and unbeknownst to me, because I'm not in Philadelphia at this point, cities are starting to develop their own little scenes, Philadelphia particularly. And at this point, I feel I would be remiss, and I want to say this now because I don't want to forget it. If you ask me, if you ask a lot of old schoolers, and I wouldn't be surprised if you've heard it in other interviews, to me, punk rock in Philadelphia started and owes its life to Bobby Startup. You know, he booked the hot club, he sang for the autistics, he managed the pharaoh, the bloodless pharaohs, and you know, he was the first one who was really doing anything that I knew of. And like, you know, I'd heard about these clubs in Philly, I think there was Hot Club, Artemis, um, you know, I mean, this is still early days. So I, finally I just flunk out of school. And like, you know, it's, uh, I'm really fucking hell-bent and beautiful at this point. I'm really, I'm thin from speed. I'm starting to like, you know, I've found that like I know how to fucking talk to chicks now. It's like the, the dope gives me some fucking, some, some moxie, you know. It's like, calls my inner insecurities. Yeah, weed and, and drugs really set me free. It's the first time I ever felt comfortable in my own skin. I could dance, I could talk, you know, it was like, you know, my 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 limp didn't seem so as impeding, you know, it's like, I felt good about myself, you know. I didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong or immoral or, you know, hurting anybody. I also started dealing drugs at this time, mostly just weed. You know, it's bringing money in to basically fuel the party. This is down in D.C.? No, this is when I dropped out. And so you're back? No, I'm not, well, I'm talking, you know, chronology's not my strong point because I've had a lot of head trauma. Okay. We'll get to that later. But, um, yeah, so it's just like, you know, I'm starting to find this lifestyle, you know. I, and I realized, you know, I had this epiphany. I did not fit in with my family, and I never would. I'm cast out. I have to find, you know, a, a, a familiars. I have to find a family. And that's what the punks were, man. Those were all my people. They were, we were all custom fit to be motherfucking misfits, you know. Yeah. And everyone's got their different story, how they came to the 
to the life, you know, but that's how it came for me. I didn't like what I was raised with. I didn't like what was imparted to me and I wanted different. And punk just really appealed to me, you know, it's like it was, it was crazy, you know, it was aggressive and people just were like, of expressing themselves in all different kinds of ways and like so um, I drop out of school I go to live in with my parents for a while and needless to say we were polarized on everything right, right. they were here I was there and it just didn't work and at this point like there was actually some life in Cherry Hill Emerald City had opened when when the uh, Latin Casino closed, and if you remember Jimmy, they were like, at first they tried to be a disco, but the, that wave had crashed. Next thing you knew, Emerald City was hosting every great band. I mean, I saw the Ramones there, Iggy Pop, the Pretenders, you know, it's like Gang of Four, it's like fucking incredible. But it still got this real suburban tinge to it. It was a great place. Lots of people from Philly came over, and I started meeting people from Philly. One night, I go home with this chick who worked at the button stand at Emerald City. Cute girl, bit of big ass, but, you know, 2019, it's like, I'm just getting my numbers up, you know, fucking refining my, my carnal ballets with, you know, beguiled, besotted females that, you know, I could just mystify with my fucking bullshit and speed. And, um... I like speed for sex too, um, but anyway, so I go to Philly with this chick and I, you know, have a night of Eros with her and, and I'm like, man, I gotta get the fuck out of Cherry Hill, man. I gotta get into Philly. I'm not like, this is the best I got and it's pretty good, but like, I gotta go where the action is. Mm -hmm. So I figured out a way to like con some money out of my parents. I got my first apartment in 9th and 10th and Pine. And I couldn't hold a job, so I was evicted within months. And at this point, I had kind of found my wingman. My partner in crime was a kid I knew from Cherry Hill named Mark. And he became, and he was at Penn, you know. And he, we became friends in high school. He was a senior in high school, and I was a freshman, and I had already found what the fuck was what. And he was a searcher just like me. You know, he was running with these, like, Victorian Jews, you know, like the fucking the quasi-intelligentsia of Cherry Hill, and his friends fucking hated me, and they would be like, why do you hang out with that weird, creepy Paul guy? And Mark finally said, because he's cool, fuck you. And we became, like, linked, and he went to Penn, and, like... Was he involved in the punk scene? He, he was starting to, like, I had started to turn him on to things, and he was about the groove, you know, he... He had the similar thing with me, just felt different, you know, just wanted to see what was, what, what's on the fringe, you know. So uh, we became, we became punk rock bus boys, you know, in a, rest, in a restaurant in West Philadelphia, Holiday Inn 36 and Chestnut is where Sankey is now, but, and like, we... I already knew I love speed. We 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 worked with this old Guinea dude there, Pat Vitali, who was like selling crank. Like we'd done, I'd done a lot of pill speed, but now it's like we're getting into crank, you know, meth, you know, biker speed, and like man, like we really. And at this point, you know, is right about when hardcore is starting to break in Philly. Like punk is evolving. 
and we'd been going to clubs, you know, we'd been East Side Club, um, I don't know, whatever else was around. We were regulars down the East Side Club. But then when Love Hall opened up, oh, this is a funny thing. I got to be kind of honest about this. Like, you know, we were trying on all the different hats of the scene. And we're like, man, new romantics, you know, like, we'll try that. You know, we'll get some fucking gay clothes and go hang out at the club and see what we can do. We can get some chicks with flock of seagull hair and fuck them. And, and Did you just, have the flock of seagull hair? No, I didn't go that far. I went as far as to make some fashion statements like with Toreador pants and puffy shirts. And we went to a few of those. Just like, fuck this, man. It's like, this is bullshit. Like, these chicks, you know, it's, they don't want us. You know, they want fucking Duran Duran. And uh, so we just... And at that time, we started meeting some of these other hardcore people. So we started going to Love Hall. You know, Howard and Bruce and Steve I were doing Love Hall at this point. Love Hall had kind of evolved from... Love Hall was, I believe, a club first. Love Club. Love Club, right. <clears throat> and then, like, they moved across the street to Long March. I mean, I can't... It's all pretty fuzzy to me. But, like, you know, at that point, we're in our mid-20s. We're on speed. We're getting fucked. We're having a good time. We're dealing weed. You know, it's like Mark has dropped out. I've dropped out. Neither one of us is like looking at anything beyond like the next chick, you know, the next thrill. And it was great, man. That was such a good time. I do not regret it at all. So the, so the, the sea change, in, in a sense, from punk to hardcore in Philadelphia, was this appealing to you? Did you feel as much of a connection to the, the burgeoning you know, hardcore scene? At first, it was a little curious to me. I mean, it was definitely a different style. I mean, but it was definitely punk. It was like basically like, you know, a firm finger in the face of, you know, decency, morality. And I never really, you know, and I really loved what I was hearing as far as it sounds. And like I said, I'd already heard Black Flag and you know, some of the stuff in D.C. Were you seeing any of the Philly right. bands of the era? At, well, at, at this point, I'm seeing them all because we're basically living at Love Hall. I mean, and they had a fucking killer scene going on. Like, you know, probably at least shows every weekend, some, uh, you know, some during the week. You know, some other places were doing them. You know, like you could occasionally find something. Let's see, where else were, you know, like people would just put on like warehouse shows, like, Wet Spot at 12th and Arch, um, you know, De uh, Christian Weber started, you know, after Howard and Bruce and, and, and Steve, I remember like Christian, Christian Weber and Lenny Crunch basically became the hardcore promoters. And then Chuck Meehan started being a hardcore promoter. So and people, sticks. right, people just started realizing we could fucking do this. I mean, me and Mark had the Ferenz Tavern for a while. You know, where we would do shows. We did some cool bands there in this little fucking dive. The Dwarves, Big Chief, L7, you know. Bands that like, you know. I mean, and plus in those days, you know, if you wanted to book bands or book shows, it's like, if people trusted in you and believed you, you know, a handshake deal and a, and a good faith was, was all you needed, mm -hmm. you know. Punks knew that they weren't going to get fucked by other punks. It was, it was you know, punk ethics, you know, don't shit where you sleep, don't fuck your friends over, you know, don't be a rat, you know, like, don't s steal from your friends, I mean, stealing is okay if you need to steal, as long as you steal from, like, 
you know, Whitey or the establishment or the man. Record stores. But, um, you know, but like, you know, I mean, we definitely had a code of conduct amongst ourselves. Even our, even the, the, the crank people I fell in with, because like, I remember a lot of us got really into meth. It was just a perfect drug for hardcore. It really was. It's like, and we're in our 20s. And it's like, I never felt like I was abusing anything. I just felt like I was propelling my lifestyle. You so know? you didn't feel that the drug had a control over you? Not at all. Not at all. Not speed. I never felt like I like I could do like these binges four or five days until I achieved a blissful psychosis and then like crash out. And like when I came to like 24, 36 hours later, I wasn't like sick like I was. You know, like when I got strung on dope, I mean... It, I like retroactively once I examined it I was like wow that wasn't fun at all man that speed so was that's, a, that's a little later yeah that's later speed was a lot of fun and a lot of us were doing it, it was really weird you know like our hardcore scene had like different factions like Jimmy came from Jersey you know Seeds of Terror were from Jersey and you know, there was like a bunch of Jersey punks. There were West Philly punks, which is where we started from. Me and Mark, Eddie Hacksaw was on XPN, you know. They were starting to play our music on XPN and KDU. And like, you know, so there was like, and we would all congregate at Love Hall. That was like the temple. That's where we had the ritual, you know. That's where we, you know, did our thing, you know. And, you know, and of course, in any kind of social microcosm, there's drama and bullshit and resentments. But for the most part, I never met a punk back then I didn't like and couldn't relate to that weren't my kin, you know. And uh, Mark was the same, and, you know, Eddie was our boy, and we had, like, chicks that we'd hang out with, and Stevie Marasco was part of my crew who went on to be a Philly punk lifer with the Butcher Brothers and the big thing, and Jose was my boy, and we just, Ron Kitagawa, it's like, we really blended, you know, and I became friends with Howard, you know, doing shows, and, you know, we just had, like, a family affair going on, and we would, you know, and the shows is where we would, you know, I mean, the music was really what was, you know, the, the, the adhesive for it. But, you know, there was the clothes and the lifestyle, but, like, it was ethos. Like I said, we all had a set of values, even if it was no values. You know, that was our value. You know, we didn't, you know, me and a lot of my people were not concerned with immorality or morality. We were just amoral. We didn't give a fuck. You know, well, What do you think, what were the ethos then that, that bound you together? You know, like, we were all just these outsiders. Like, you know, if the kids are united, you know, they will never be divided. You know, kids of the black hole, you know, like, the forgotten, you know, troops of tomorrow, whatever. Like, every fucking punk anthem is about that shit. That, like, you know, you know, united, you know, stand as one, fall, you know, stand, fall as one, you know. You know, when Eddie died in the fire, I mean, you know about that, right, Eddie? You Hacksaw. should probably... Eddie Hacksaw was a DJ at XPN. Just a fucking great guy, you know. Nobody couldn't say anything but the best stuff about Eddie. And then he went on a trip with a bunch of other Philly punks, Todd Cody, Rich Poor, BB from uh, Homo Picnic, and they got in a bad accident, and Eddie got killed. You know, Rich got hurt. Todd, you know, was handicapped. You know, he burned to the point where they had to, you know, remove some of his fingers. And, you know, Rich got burned, and... You know, but Eddie got burned and died. And Eddie was like, 
away type friend of mine, you know. And um, and Eddie was the one guy who was punk as fuck, you know, really just had it all, man. Just like lived it, you know, was all about it, but was also a high achiever at University of Pennsylvania. He was one of those rare exceptions that could balance it. Mm -hmm. And we knew that Eddie was going to be a lawyer. And to most of us, lawyers were disgusting. But we knew Eddie would do right by mm -hmm. being a lawyer, that he would be helping people like us and, you know, looking out for us. But Eddie died in his prime, and it really fucking devastated me devastated Mark and devastated a lot of Eddie's close friends and that really set me on a spiral. I got really self-destructive after that. So this is with drugs? Obviously. With drugs right. and right. acting out and just, you know, it, it got to the point where it was going beyond recreational and becoming medicinal, not knowing it at the time because, you know, can't see the forest through the trees. Is this still primarily with amphetamines or did you move on to other substances? Amphetamines, I mean, I, you know, I mean, if you offered me a drug, I would take it, you know, but like amphetamines was still the most part, but we were getting into other shit, fucking with a lot of acid and selling a lot of acid. And, uh, man, we had some crazy trips. So, like we went to that Rock Against Reagan trip, you know, the ones they had in DC, like hitchhiking down and just, you know, I mean, we just didn't give a fuck. We just wanted to have a good time. We wanted to hear our music. You know, we wanted to fuck punk broads and just, it's like jobs were something if you had to have one, you did, you know, there were jobs in Philadelphia, like, you know, punk rocker could always get a mess and bike messenger job or taco house. Taco house. Tippy's taco, taco house. Right. Neil, Jackal Sex Zombie and Phil Commander used to work there and they would get high on dust and add special DNA additives to the refried beans. And you know, it's like, I bet Jackal didn't talk about that in his interview. That did not come up. <laughs> but uh, oh, I love that guy, man. He's ageless. He looks great, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, you yeah. said PCP's bad for you. Did a lot for me, too, you know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, so it's like, you know, we found our ways to exist, subsist. You know, a lot of them were, a lot of the hardcore kids were younger than us, too. Like, they were, you know, because, FOD were what, like 15 when they formed? But like, and now Philadelphia at this point has like a gaggle of killer local bands like Why Die, Ruin, Autistic Behavior. You know, some I liked more than others, but like, you know, I mean, if you want to know to me, the band that like really moved me a lot in that direction too, even though it was kind of a different thing, was The Stickmen. Like, we went to the Stickmen shows, and that was a speed nexus, too. And it just seemed like everything just kind of blended and flowed, you know. East Side Club, hardcore. It's like, we were all just, like, you know, degenerate bohemians, just not wanting what was being programmed to us. And, you know, we didn't want MMR or YSP. We wanted KDU or XPN. We didn't want, you know... Fleetwood Mac, we wanted, like, you know, to just, you know, listen to, you know, Angry Samoan, Circle Jerks, and just, you know, all the, I mean, I, I was there for, like, the Starlight Ballroom riots, you know, I mean, I was in it, you know, I mean. You yeah, know, Chuck talked about that in his A lot of us were, you know, just fixtures. Like, Jimmy, you know, you could tell him, like, there were people you knew that you were going to see every fucking weekend because. Phoebe. BB, you know, just like everybody, Lafayette, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, the, the, the regulars. Kaufman. 
you know, just like your family, your friends, you know, and like, like I said, we'd all commune and, and but like, you know, some of us had different lifestyles. Some of the kids were like living at home with their parents in the suburbs, scaring them, but you know, their parents weren't like my parents, my way or the highways, you know, it's like Mark Sargent, you know, I mean, all these people. Like, so did the two of you know each other at this time? Yeah, I mean, we'd encountered each we've, other. We've seen each other. Right. But, it, but, like, but your friendship had not yet. Well, I mean, he lived in Jersey, and he also, Jimmy has also always had a really straight job. Jimmy, you know, worked for the Sheriff's Department, Camden County Sheriff's Department. But let me tell you something, you know, Jimmy's not a cop, Jimmy's not a narc, Jimmy did a job, and he, like, and he went in, and I'm sure he was. As, my paycheck. I was I'm sure he was. As, I'm that. sure he was as subversive as he could be. And it's like I ran you know, half the zines in the city from the from the copy machine at the city hall in Camden. So, yeah. When did, when did you start working for them? Uh, Eighty-three, November eighty-three. Then how old were you? I didn't. I was uh, twenty-one, I think. Okay. And eighty-three, I was twenty. And people give me their zines to publish. I'd be running them all in Xerox machines all night long. I mean, and the, the scene, and and as more time was going by, the scene was just getting bigger and being more vibrant and transforming and mutating. It's like, as any art form is wont to do, it finds its own bounds. It continuously challenges itself to evolve. I mean, you had these bands like Flipper, you know, punk as fuck, but not like anything else, you know, like Crucifix, you know, just like weird shit, you know. And the sound is just like taking on all these different forms and different hardcore scenes are factionalizing. There's the New York scene and the Boston scene and the DC scene, and, you know. Maximum Rock and Roll is, you know, reporting about all of our scenes and, and a network is forming and it's becoming really cool, really underground, like, you know, if you knew what was going on with punk, you were pretty hip to me. How do you feel that Philly was perceived outside of the city of Philadelphia? You know, I don't think Philly ever really got its due, like Boston and, and D.C. and New York did. And, of course, you know, the San Francisco, because that's where MR, Maximum Rock and Roll, and Flipside, you know. But, like, you know, and I'll tell you this much, Steve Blush was a friend of mine in college. You know, we, you know, he, we went and saw Black Flag together. And when Steve Blush was doing American Hardcore, the book, he asked me to get in, how to get in touch with Howard, Matt Howard. And like for some reason or another, Howard had like life shit going on and could just never get with it. So like, I think in the first version of that book, the Philly scene is not really given much due. I've heard in the- Two paragraphs. I've heard in the second edition, it has been revised. I've even heard I've been mentioned in it. Big fucking deal. But like, you know, so like, I don't. I think we were never really like, you know, Ruin, are to me still like one of the most phenomenal bands I've ever seen. Most people outside Philadelphia have no idea what the fuck. You know, why die got a little dap in other cultures. You know, I think when our compilations came out, like everyone, if you were into punk, you were like studying. You wanted to hear what was outside your area code. But I don't think we ever broke as big as, I think we were more. There wasn't really a Philly sound, I don't think No, so there much. was not, the, you're the, right. Those bands that, all kind of sound Right, because like, DC had its sound, it's like, and I liked some of the DC sound. The New York sound never appealed to me, not to mention that it was just too testosteronical for me, like, you know, it was just too like, 
agnostic front and Chromex. I mean, I, I didn't hate it, but it was just, it was too postured macho leave for me. It, it seemed like that shit was gonna scare chicks more than it was gonna lure them. And, and, that, and for me, that was always a big part of the, the thing. I, I just wanted fucking as many chicks as I could get, you know? I mean, I was smart enough to figure at that age, it's like, a girlfriend is like a fucking ball and chain. You have to, you know, like worry about, you know, how did, what does she think? How does she feel? You know, it's like, I mean, I hate to say it, but like, yeah, I was really misogynistic. You know, I liked girls and I treated them well, but like, for the most part, they were just like temporary thrills in a place to park my dick, you know? And hopefully they had some weed or some speed that I could convince them to give me or I would just take it from them. And, um, and so, yeah, but like, the Boston scene, I liked some of it. It's funny, like years later, like the king of Boston hardcore, Springer, has become one of my best friends with him living in Chicago. But like, you know, and labels starts bringing up at this point, Tang and Discord, you know. Philly didn't have a label either. You know, we didn't have a real record label. You know, I mean, certain people were putting out boutique records. You know, certain bands were doing their little DIY singles, but there was no Philadelphia label. So I think that had something to do with it. You know, Philadelphia's always been viewed as like a second tier big city. Like New York thinks, you know, they're the shit. For me, it's like, I mean, I would rather be like, you know, I'm a fucking dyed-in-the-wool Philadelphia, you know? It's like, I don't live here now, and I'm sad because my consequences drove me away, you know? But, like, yeah, Philly, you know, that's, it made me, you know, more than anything, you know? Growing up punk in Philadelphia created Paul Bearer, you know? So, um, you know, so basically, at this point now, I'm in Philly, I get in a bad scene, so I ditch to San Francisco, and this is now where I'm, I'm at the point where I'm going to evolve. Right, so the, I, the bad scene is the, the drug scene. Drug it's, scene, it's and I got in a big fight with my best friend over a piece of pussy, you know. And so I dipped. I ran with the Butcher Brothers, Jose and Steve. We were going to go to San Francisco, relocate the band there, and you know, get on the cover of Maximum Rock and Roll and flip side, you know, punk rock greatness, you know, ascend. And we went out there and like, we did good, you know, but like, I just was running from something and, you know, and I met Tim Oman who played in the San Francisco Vat Band, Condemned to Death. And he was doing a hardcore thing out there, but he wanted to do a different flavor than what was going on out there, you know, all very political and all very, Overamped, you know, like MDC, you know, it's great, great bands out there, though. The Dicks were out there, and the Offenders, and, you know, so I saw a lot of good music out there. I saw Ruin when they came out there, and that's when I realized Ruin was not just a Philadelphia phenomenon, because when they came they out to San Francisco, well. oh my God, they fucking blew up. People could just not fucking believe what was going on with Ruin, and it was, it was really cool to watch. It made me swell with fucking Liberty Bell pride. Like, my homies are fucking busting up the coast. And I actually ended up coming home with Ruin at the end of that tour because I got sick with mono. I had already become really good friends with Tim from C2D at this point. I came back to Philadelphia. I ended up living with Chuck Meehan, Rodney Anonymous, Jeannie Williams, Tamara Claire, Tim Dunn, all in this fucking Philly shithole. You know, I, I got back into the Philly scene. Me and my best friend repaired our relationship. 
frolics resume. Still no real consequences, just some inner inner angst. But like next thing you know, Tim gets in touch with me. He's like, hey, I'm done in San Francisco. I'm either moving to Sanford, going back to Wisconsin, or I'm moving to Philadelphia to start a band with you. And I'm like, dude, I'm not, I've never been in a band. I mean, I don't know how to sing. I was like, and Tim was the one, Tim Omen was the one that saw the divine spark in me, the entertainer. You know, he said to me, he's like, you'll learn how to sing. It's punk rock. What you have is the fucking the gift of, of glib, you know, you could talk shit, and that's what I want in my band, because he, for, you know, he had this vision of the serial killers, he was the one that wanted to be the gore and wrestling and just trash culture, you so know. So what year is this? That what this year is, is this, Jimmy, like 80, 85, 85. Mm -hmm. yeah, and then by 86, we're gigging, you know, me, Tim Oman, Stevie Butcher, and Rich Hutchins from Ruin, some people might know, was our first drummer. And frankly, I was fucking awful. I mean, like, I wanted to quit after every show. But Tim just kept me in there. Tim was like, Tim was the one that gave me my moniker, Paul Bearer. You know, I mean, I, you know, I liked it. I was okay with it. It predated the wrestling manager. I didn't, you know, I mean, if, if Paul Bearer from Sheer Terror was around at that point, I wasn't aware of it. But like, he and me aren't the first ones to use that moniker yeah. either. I mean, I think there were like some garage bands, you know. But anyway, TV hosts. Right. So anyway, we become the serial killers. We start gigging out. I'm really inadequate. We go through some lineup changes. But eventually, once we start gigging out of town, I realize, man, it's like, if I go out of town, I can portray myself larger than life. I leave and I don't have to worry about how people perceive me because I'm scared, you know? It's like, it's it's a scary thing to get up on stage and sing in front of people. It is, you know, like, you know, until you have a certain inner confidence in your latent abilities till you refine it like any craft. So the serial killers around the second year start getting really good. That's when we bring him in, you know? Like, we, we would always try and augment our lineup with like, dancing girls and we did stage show and over the years our stage show started getting bigger not like guar big because we never had the budget that they somehow managed like somehow in virginia guar managed to flourish while the serial killers managed to exist at best in philadelphia but so why don't you talk a little bit about what the the shows were like i mean i know that maybe isn't a typical show but kind of give the idea well, for typically who's... you know we we wanted to do a stage show Sometimes clubs wouldn't let us do a stage show. We would do what we call dry shows, where we would work wrestling shtick in, you know, but like a lot of like, you know, I mean, we, me and Tim were really, really big wrestling marks and we, you know, dug flair. And then it got to the point in the 80s where we had our own little wrestling punk hybrid scene with like George DeFusco and Big Bill and Mark Sargent and Furry Couch and just like all of us, Fat Howard was a wrestling punk, you know, so we were going to as much live wrestling in the 80s as we were to shows. So that was a big, but our stage show, Tim wanted to be very offensive because he was really into the mentors were a big influence, but like, like we wanted to be like Alice Cooper crossed with Black Flag. 
and that's kind of what, you know, Tim was a very Greg Ginn influenced guitar player and very Glenn, you know, Misfits, Poppy songwriter. So we, like, I think the difference between us and Guar is like, they really put on a great show and obviously have flourished and done well for themselves. But we wrote much better songs than them because we had tune craft, you know, it wasn't just like riffs to like, you know, but like our show was a little more Herschel Gordon Lewis, you know, a little more Grand Guignol, you know. And at first we were just doing like mannequin arms and shirts and, you know, but like eventually we started hiring people and we did a few shows that like are notorious. Like people these days still talk about them. The one, I don't know if you were there at this point, when we opened for the Butthole Surfers at the, the Court, Court Tavern. Tavern. And like one of our big stage effects at that point was we had this guy who would go to the Italian market and buy like sheep intestines, you know, like just the lining. And he would make like fake intestines with like oats and dog food, like just fucking like soak it in just fucking goo. And like, and we would have Victor the victim, and we would have like, and like, we would do like an instrumental. And Jimmy was like basically stage henchman, background vocalist. He really, you know, was th the fifth member, you know, he, you know, I mean, I really think that once we got him, it really, that's when we really coalesced as a band, that we needed him as much as we needed me, Tim, Robin, and Randy. You know, without him, our live show was just... I mean, Guar did it too with their slaves, and, you know, other bands have had their Tish and Snooky from the Sick Fucks, you know, so it's not like we invented that shit, but, you know, so, um... Excuse me, are you in the band? No. Uh, okay. He, he was. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so... You know, we start doing this stage show, so we do this like at the Butthole Surfers Court Tavern, like just like asses to elbows. We pull fucking guts out of this guy, a fucking big bucket of guts. And it literally turned the whole fucking Court Tavern into a skating rink. Now, sure and, the like, tavern was right. not that And this is it. before the Buttholes played, obviously. And during the whole Butthole set, like they were doing their chaos and people were just like, whoosh, it was like fucking, it was so fucking crazy. And then the one that really put us on the map, that like, this was like the show that like, people that weren't there claimed to be there. And that was the infamous serial killer spaghetti wrestling show. We're at Revival. You know, Cause at this point, it's already the late eighties. It's 88 at this point, maybe moving into 89. Punk in the clubs was dead. Like, you know, I mean, like there were no more, like, Hardcore Love Hall was had Love Hall was closed. burned down and occasional CE Center show. Right, I mean Starlight. So you got Club Pizzazz, probably. Yeah. I mean, all yeah. of it was just kind of and like plus, like I said, I'm in my late twenties at this point, and I'm wanting to be more of a club act. I want to like, you know, I mean, we would still do house shows, and you know, we play wherever they would, you know, but like doing a big stage show was more geared to like. A bar with lights and you know we wanted people to see us and, you know and it was always better if they were really drunk you know some bars you know we played at the kennel and you know we played at uh, revival a bunch you know we made and we were one of the few bands that had gotten to the point where we were big enough to headline our own shows and guarantee a draw so clubs would book us so we we'd, we'd done a bunch of shows at, at, at revival and um and uh, so we decided we were going to do the spaghetti wrestling show. And like 
Don Bradley worked at Barrel Grocer on South Street, bulk food store, and she gives us 50 pounds of spaghetti. Me and Tim and, and Larry are, you know, de facto, cooking it all day. Like de facto manager cooking spaghetti all day. You know, draining it and pouring it into garbage bags. You know, mixing it up with a little fucking baby oil, you know. And, you know, so we go to Revival, we've got these giant bags of spaghetti. Now, what is Revival, you know, the staff? think when you're bringing in bags of they didn't know it because it was just in hefty bags and like they knew we did stage show and we and we also had a kiddie pool you know which maybe should have learned so like the end of the show like the very end of the show we're like okay you know and we do you remember who you were playing with we were headlining do you remember who we were i mean i i couldn't tell you who supported uh, I psycho nurse psych thank <laughs> you but anyway so we get on stage we do our usual you know show you know tongue rippings non brandings the you know this the scaled down stuff next thing you know it's like jimmy brings out the fucking pool you know puts it right he was there right mark you were at that spaghetti wrestling you know but like he brings out the pool he brings out the bags of pasta and we just pour pasta into the pool and like you know next thing you know we introduce the combatants for you know horny drunk broads Bernie, and, and Bernie. Who are these women? One was Audrey O'Brien, who's moved to San Francisco, married one of the psychedelic furs, little footnote for punk rock history. Molly, who was Larry's girlfriend at the time. Jennifer Shewolf, who was Tim's girlfriend at the time. And some other broad who just Chubby got... Chubby blonde. You just got drafted to round out the, the match. Right. And like, so that, you know... And they, all these women are, are game for this. Yeah, I mean, they've they, been they drafted. Women. They've, you know, yeah. they're, 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 they're plants, you know. So Bernie is the referee. He's got his striped shirt and his whistle and, you know, and Jimmy pours all the pasta in and it's like, next Extra thing... baby oil. Next thing you know, we start do, going into an instrumental. And these broads just start fucking wrestling in the pool with the spaghetti and it's fucking it's good man it's like it's really it's good next thing you know you know spaghetti starts getting hurled around a bit and basically a mob mentality ensued and once the first person got hit with some spaghetti they picked it up and threw it at the next person and Ipso facto and whatnot, a huge fucking food fight ensued. You were part of this? 50 yes. pounds of pasta <laughs> are just being flown willy-nilly every fucking where. And they had huge and, TV monitors right, hanging and, from the ceiling. Right, and it's like, that, and yeah. like, next thing you know, it's like, okay, that's the last song, we're done, good night. You know, and like, next thing you know, they're like making everybody leave the club. They're emergency shutting down the club because they don't want pasta trampled all over through the rugs. And so they make everybody leave. Like, they're like, sorry, we got to close. Everyone's out on fucking third. It's right down the street from here, isn't it? Yeah. Revival? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and like everyone's out there like, oh my God, can you like, people are like, I was it's like, it was just fucking, it was demented. And like, well, to make a long story short, we did not get paid anything that night. And we were told we were banned for a year. And like, meanwhile, two months later, they were begging us to come back and play as long as we didn't do spaghetti. Again. But until Revival closed, you would see dried spaghetti. In, it's probably in, still in, there in his current You know, and like the serial killers rolled on. I've fully become Paul Bear at this point. I've right. left Paul Hyman and my parents' world behind, but I've also now moved on to trying drugs, hard drugs, heroin, 
Let me hold it. Let me hold you for one second. Did you want to just uh, if you come over for a second? Do you, do you Mark Sargent. Yeah, if you introduce Mark, yourself, Mark uh, Sargent. Mark Sargent. I love having this guy around because he's laughed at everything I've ever said <laughs> since nineteen. Funny and not. You were you were at the spaghetti oh, show. Oh, I've been yeah. to probably missed maybe two or three of their shows. And I imagine <laughs> yeah. it was always a, quite a scene. Oh yeah, I was. That's I've been sawed by you. <laughs> uh, I've cut him a few times. Cut him a few times. Uh, I probably... Did some elbow drops from Paul. Very good. I mean, I've, I've, I've been in there. <laughs> I've been in the midst of it. We had a great fan base. And then we went on the road. We did what a lot of other... Because Tim had, you know, cut his teeth in San Francisco and made some connections. But, like, at this point, bands were still booking themselves. You know, it's like... Booking agencies were still kind of like a luxury for bigger bands. This is before the big Nirvana break when punk could become commoditized, you know. And uh, so we did a couple of tours, lost our asses. The funny thing is, you know, on the first tour we went on, like we had we had a caravan. We had Jimmy's van with a trailer and Robin, our bass player, bought along this British guy she was friends with who turned out his name was Graham and Graham we later found out played in a very instrumental British band post-punk band The Sound Adrian Borland's band and we're like wow this guy's cool and he would help us with gas money and when we didn't make enough and I mean the tours were just you know bargain basement like we'd kill him in fucking Seattle one night and fill the Vogue and then like in Eugene Oregon the next night we'd play some Rasta's garage like opening eight for kids. Metallica cover band and, we, <laughs> and like eight kid like our audience consisted of eight kids on their bikes you know? and we got paid in jerk chicken and weed you know that was how punk rock on the road was right. so, you know we didn't we never stayed in a fucking hotel are you kidding you know flooring it and whoring it, you know, and totally adoring it, you know. And those were great times, because like I said, on the road, I could really expand the Paul Bearer character, larger than life, the king. You know, that was my theme song. My friend Mark wrote that song for me, I Am The King. To this day in Philadelphia, there's still people who reverently, and I, and it touches me, referred to me as King Paul Bearer, you know. Ever since I got in trouble, I referred to myself as the King of Philadelphia in exile, you know. Yeah. And uh, so that's it, you know, that's where Paul Bearer came from. Tim, yeah. Tim Omen invented him. You know, Tim Omen birthed the serial killers. And what really went wrong with the serial killers is beyond just not being able to self-perpetuate, Tim, unlike me, I'm a raging socialite. I want to be around people. Tim just wanted to get a girlfriend who we could have anal sex with, watch some wrestling videos, hang out and smoke weed. Did he his did, dreams come true? Yeah, all the time. Oh, Tim, Tim, Tim was a good looking guy, you know, gaunt and tall and tatted up. And, you know, chicks dug Tim. He had that kind of brooding shit that chicks liked. And like, so Tim didn't want to go out. Tim was not the promoter and the socialite. You know, even though I say Tim started the band, Tim at that point was writing 90% of the material. You know, the concept was him, his, he gave me the name, he made me, but by the end, people started associating the band with me. Paul Bearer was the serial killers, and Tim, I think, you know, I mean, ego, every artist has an ego. I got one, biggest fucking Mars, you know. 
but I also have a total inferiority complex too, which is the duality that makes it so fun. So anyway, Tim basically broke up the band, you know, and I was like, okay. And Tim basically told me he was moving to Atlantic City to become a, a croupier or a blackjack dealer. But he started double penetration with Jimmy, you know, Jimmy and Rich Poor. You know, it was kind of more like serial killers were, you know, more black. This was like his basically his mentor shtick. You know, sex, you know, we you know, we got tacky, but like double penetration was like a porn rock band. Serial killers were like a gore rock band. And it, it, it hurt my feelings, it really did, and it, it drove a wedge between me and Tim. But then I started Three Foot Acid with Rob DeJoseph, who's punk royalty in this town, if you ask me. Rob played Little Gentleman, Wide Eye, you know. Rob is like incredible musician and just a sweet... Let me, let me hold you up for a second, because before we move out of Serial Killers, I wanted to bring Jimmy yeah. in for a minute. Oh, cool. So how is it that you came to have this involvement with the... the I band? fucked his girlfriend <laughs> while he was away. <laughs> and uh, we went out for like... Two, me and Tina went out for like three weeks. It was every night I'd bring her back to my house and bang her, bang her, bang her. We're getting tight. We're going on. I'm, I'm banging his girlfriend. I'm banging the shit out of her. I didn't know it was his girlfriend the whole time. Like, he came home and surprised her from wherever he was. I think he went out on like a gig with a, a week tour with Ruin or something. Uh -huh. And he came, she goes, I gotta, she pulls me to the CE center, pulls me aside, she goes, I gotta talk to you. My boyfriend just got home. I, I really had a boyfriend the whole time. We're breaking up. And she just strolled off and he pulls her out front of the seat. Tina, get on the bike! Because he had a uh, little Honda scooter. He had a little Honda scooter. Said, get on the bike, Tina, what, what's keeping you? He's screaming, she's breaking up with me. And then, like, uh, we're at Third Street Jazz, like, three weeks later, it's like a couple weeks before the serial killer's first gig with Sam Ain and Wide Eye. Wide Eye, the great the Wide Eye ride. That was a good one, too. And he, he's, you don't like Wasp. He's stoned off his ass, and he's like, can you give me a ride down to South Street? He goes, don't worry. I know you're the one that fucked my girlfriend, but I think you're really cool. And he invited me to the serial killer's first gig, put me on the, put me on the, uh, the list to get in. And uh, that's about it. And then uh, once I got a van, he says, oh, we, need, we need you. <laughs> I got pulled in because I got a van. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm doing background vocals. I'm running, running all the effects while I'm doing background vocals. I'd, I would leave, get the effects ready for the next thing because those guys can't play and do it at the same time. They have to take minutes in between songs. So during the songs, I'd be getting all the stuff ready and the wrestling effect and recruiting girls for victims and recruiting girls to give Paul blowjobs. How, so how is it? How is it that you procure women to do these, you know, these things on stage? I mean, how do you He's got the kavorka, I would the just, lore of the animal. I just talk him up, and say, "Listen, you, you want to be on stage? And it's like, yeah. you just, we'll give you an outfit. You, you can change back in your regular clothes. You'll get some stuff on you, but they, we, we just trashed her clothes. Their clothes will get bent. totally covered with gore anyway." Can I interrupt? I got, I got to tell, talk about one more, like landmark serial killer show is when we played with Mud Honey in Jeff Jenkins' basement, Westside Club. Mud Honey had just, was just breaking, and we played in West Philly at Jeff Jenkins, which was, what, on 34th and Powell, I think? Yeah, and it was in what Powell. year would this be, like 87 88, so? Mud Honey was just, grunge was fun, you know, like, was on the fringes as the next thing. And so we hooked Mud Honey up with a gig, and the serial killers open for him. And we knew we weren't going to do a big stage show in the basement. But Mega Jimmy had somehow like hypnotized some broad who was like smoking PCP to like basically like, what you're going to do is take off all your clothes and we're <laughs> going to chain you to the drums 
the drum stand and you're gonna eat dog food out of a bowl. It wasn't really dog food, it was, it was like, like a corn meatball. melt I got a meatball sandwich and I chopped it up. So like this chick's like, and okay. She's, she's, she's agreeable to this. Yeah. So like, why, she's why a, would she be agreeable? Because she's on dust. I was banging her at the time. Oh, okay. And he's, you know, he's Jimmy. I, I mean, like, you know, listen. This is the bottom line. You know, I'm not every young girl's dream. He's even less young girl's dreams than me. And yet, like, would you agree with that, Jimmy? Yes. <laughs> yes. Because we've got personality and soul and a sense of humor, and we're smart. Chicks are way more forgiving than dudes. Chicks will fuck ugly guys with person good personalities, unlike dudes who won't fuck ugly chicks. Oh, she's a good sport. I don't give a fuck. Richie Allen's a good sport, you know. But, but um, you know, but so yeah, like so we had you know, this chick. Call her, her dust woman. In her leopard brown panties, just basically like zoned on fucking sherm, like eating fucking ground beef out of a bowl while we're just like crushing it, you know? And like mud honey, we're still like pretty green on the road. And they were just like freaking the fuck out by the whole scene. Yeah, welcome to Philadelphia. Yeah, like welcome to Philadelphia. So how so how did the band But to this day, 25 years later, I'm still really good friends with Mud Honey. I just sang on stage with them in New York the other night on my 53rd birthday. Yes, I lived 53 years. Lived the fuck out of it. But yeah, and they're always like the the, the long running joke is, where's PCP one? Yeah. So, so yeah. So Jimmy be, Jimmy was, you know, I wouldn't bring Jimmy here if I didn't feel like. He was as vital to the serial killers as any of the musicians. And, and if he didn't really, like, Jimmy was in punk rock here from, you know, 20 years. You know, I mean, he was a, an early adherent to our... Yeah, I'd like to talk to Jimmy yeah. ultimately separately to give him kind of a full, full set. But so that's it, man. And I'll wrap it up. I'll let you get to him. I'll tell you, like, I'll condense it. Well, a, let me ask you. Considering the, what the stage show was like with the degradation of women and so forth, did you deal with uh, a lot of people who felt that the band was oh, very misogynistic? Oh, did we deal with... Man, when we played at Gilman Street Warehouse, we they had angry dykes with, like, big-ass signs. Serial killers need ca castrate the serial. Like, but, they were marching around front, but, and they but, decided to protest by making out in front of the stage. But most, probably like, not offensive I'm watching hot punk rock chicks make out in front people, of the stage. I'm really offended. Most people knew it was just a work. It was just a gimmick. Like, Sue Love, you know, like, who was a punk rock chick in Philadelphia, like, who died young of leukemia, like, she was the one who, like, would be like, well, you brought Simmer the fuck down. It's a joke. It's fun. Punk is about like lampooning and, and harpooning. And, you know, yeah, it was certainly like, coming through, say, Maximum Rock and Roll. Right, it, yes. it was very politicized. But some of them yeah. got us. Some, we were more of a flip side fave. Like, you know, flip side, because Tim also had like roots in San Francisco punk, C2D, that band, you know. But like, yeah, most people got it. You know, most people understood, like, you know, here's guys in wrestling masks. You know, it's like, this is not like, this is not, you know, this is a farce, it's a satire. But yeah, we definitely strove to offend as much as we can. I still get a kick making white people go, oh my God, you know, it's like, that's a fucking high for me. I don't do dope anymore, but I still like to fuck with whitey as much as I can. You know? right. So, Ben, ben breaks up. This, there ultimately becomes sort of an issue with you. I mean, I imagine I this mean, is a drug-related... I mean, it wasn't like an issue. 
I mean, there was, I mean, we just, I mean, Tim and I, it, it hurt our well, I don't. I don't mean so much the band, but with you then later, I well, guess see, the drugs. Okay, yes, I'm already finding heroin at this point, as are a lot of my contemporaries, because the serial killers end in like 90, 91, you know, but like now grunge is here, the Seattle sound, heroin chic. Tons of my compatriots in Philadelphia were Tasting dope and getting strung. Dandelion, the she-males, um, Mama Volume after the she-males. Other guys in other bands, Joey Jap, and like a lot of us that were like the meth crew. See, they also changed meth at this point. Meth wasn't the fun drug it was anymore. They outlawed P2P, which was the base ingredient for what the Philadelphians called crank. And when we would use PTP, P2P based crank, we would get euphoric and empowered. They, they outlawed P2P manufacturer, and that's when the Canadian bikers invented this ephedrine formula for, for speed. And that shit just made you feel dirty, criminal, and antisocial. So we were looking for a new kind of kick, you know? And like, you know, heroin was groovy. And it didn't hurt that all of my idols had been heroin addicts. Lou Reed, Iggy, Thunders, you know, like, dope was hip to, you know. So you're taking this in the van? Oh, yeah, the, man, I'd already so. discovered, you know, needles was the way to go. Once I learned, if you can cook it up, draw it up, and shoot it up, then that was the most effective modality. And we, it's like, I'll be honest, I liked shooting up. I liked the ritual. I liked that it really freaked people out. I think it was my another way of me inwardly saying, fuck you to my parents. You know, like, what's the last thing they would ever want their nice Jewish, you know, project to do? Not fuck shit, says, not get tattoos. Yeah. Not drive motorcycles. It's not Jewish exceptionalism. No. Shooting dope was like, oh, you know, so like, yeah, but like, but like anybody else, it started out as a good time, but it eventually it owned my soul. My next band, Three Foot Acid, with Eric Hardlonger from Wide Eye and Jerry Dredd, we were, we were all junkies. Rob, our bass player, was not a junkie, but. He stayed with us because we were an amazing, like, Serial Killers were a great, fun, punk rock band. And I loved it, and it made me who and what I am. But Three Foot Acid to me, like, as far as musically was like, man, if we had stayed off dope, I really think we could have done something because we had a really dark, creepy sound. Eric, Did you record with that band? We recorded a demo, like a cassette. You know, like I think like eight songs, really good songs. Eric was too hellbent. You know, Eric was too drugged out. At this point, I was still totally strung out but functional. I was dealing enough weed that I could keep the monkey at bay until like the monkey grows and gets stronger. And, you know, eventually Eric had to split. Philadelphia because it was, you know, his meal ticket was leaving his girlfriend, Lisa Cohen, Lisa Christ Superstar, Savage 3D, Workhorse 3, that Lisa, Lisa married to Eric Perfect now from the heels. So yeah, I mean, the punk scene has kind of always been really incestuous, you know, everybody fucked everybody, everybody got high with everybody, you know, but like, so Three Foot Acid was done and basically so was I. I, I lost control of my life um, and I ended up homeless. 
I ended up getting in trouble with legal consequences, and in 94... What, what uh, can you explain? Uh, no, I can't. Uh, <laughs> I, well, let me ask you, so... It's you, just legal shit, drug bullshit, you know, I mean... Yeah. Uh, just like, so I mean, are your parents like, aware at, at the time of the, the state of their son? Okay, this is what's going on at this point. I end up homeless. I come out of the closet with my dope addiction to my parents. And I'm thinking, oh, they're gonna put me in a nice rehab, I'll get my shit together. It's like, they sent me to this shitty fucking county-run facility for crack whores and jailbirds. Is this in Jersey or Philly? In Blackwood, New Jersey called. That's where I grew up. Turning, I told you that. Remember when I first wrote to you? I said, I went to rehab and- <laughs> Lakeland. And and Lakeland, like, okay. Yeah. I went to it's fucking right Turning Point in Blackwood, you know, where they could like teach me about recovery. And it's like, I didn't want recovery. I just wanted to fucking get the reins back in my life. So I go to this rehab and I spend a few months there and like it doesn't do shit for me. Three hots in a cot. I tell them what they want to hear. I learn how to play you know, institution. You know, it's like it was fucking retarded there, you know. And, um, and there's a lot about that in my book too, my rehab stories, good stories. So anyway, I, I check out a rehab my best friend Mark has gone to rehab in Florida, except his rehab takes him to the beach. My rehab is like, we're having confrontation therapy so you could get well, find God. You know, Did you find God? No, I wasn't really was looking. Uh -huh. um, I was pretending like, but meanwhile, um, so I, 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 and at this point I'm really like, I'm, I'm ass out and I'm like my dad's basically like trying to bring me in from the dark side as he's always been and I'm, I'm in my 30s at this point I look fantastic gaunt and unhealthy was a really good look for me my, my glam Nazi vampire look I worked for a while and I could have crushed tons of pussy if I even had a concern for it but I had other needs that needed met at that point so yeah I drop out of rehab I went to a halfway house in New Jersey for a while which my halfway house director was Leonard Jenoff who was the guy who went on to murder Rabbi Newlander's wife Rabbi Newlander was the fucking one of the rabbis at my bar mitzvah in 73 right. so it's all getting Weird. Did he perform your breast? No, no. <laughs> I don't. Not that I recall. I mean, no. I think he was just a. You know, he was a junior rabbi then. But anyway, so it's just weird scenes in my life. So then I go back to Philly, and um, Mark gets out of his rehab in Florida and we convene at the 42nd and Randstead compound where a lot of punks had lived over the days. Alan and Elizabeth lived there, Tim from the Serial Killers lived there, Patrick and Patrick Prawl lived in that. Like a little three Trinity block that's like behind a diner at 42nd and Chestnut. Mark owned those buildings, but like, well his father did. And we squatted in one of them. Pat Prawl lived in one. From WKDU, I think Chuck might have lived there at one point. You know, just like a little punk ghetto that's like about as you know, not even you know, like three, like literally most people like the mailman couldn't even find that street, you know. But like, so we lived there and we were squatting and doing the dope thing, and eventually shit just got too fucking thick. We got another big blowout, me and Mark, and I basically 
got in trouble with the law. I'd been in an accident that was drug related. People got hurt. I was driving unlicensed. And Joey Jab from Blessed Mothers was in that, you know. And like basically. Was anyone killed? No. Okay. Thank what people refer to as God. No one was killed. No, I mean, people were hurt, but like Joey Jab's girlfriend got all fucked up and then got a big law settlement so she could buy a bunch of heroin and fake tits. Jap got sober after that. That's that was the catalyst for Joey getting, you know, his dope thing in check. You know, Freddie Pompey from the Hearts was doing. I mean, it was just busting up lots of shit. Dandelion got busted up from dope. She mails lots of other bands. Lots of bands didn't touch it. They had more sense than us. Like, I don't think the Dead Spot guys or the Attack Dog guys were like they weren't fucking with that shit. So anyway, I basically ran my string out. I got some legal shit, and I had to. I had to split. I basically had to make what they referred to in the rooms of recovery as a geographic cure. So I'd become friends with this guy Dano from a band in Richmond called Mud Helmet. They were a really cool Richmond punk band. We became really friendly with each other, and he's like, "Come on down. I'll help you kick." You know, we'll, 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 me and the wife will carry it for a while. So I ended up going to Richmond, Virginia, and I spent a couple, you know, a, a while down there. And that's when in like 94, just through happenstance, my good friends L7 had, you know, they were kind of snatched up on the who's the next Nirvana thing going on. And they got on Lollapalooza in 94. So they're like, come along with us, hang out with us. So at first I started just doing a bunch of shows with them, just showing up with a, a, a coterie of people from Richmond. I went to Philadelphia, I remember August 1st, 1990, or 94, because that's when I first met Nick Cave. And Nick Cave was an idol of mine at this point from the birthday party. And I'd met some of my other idols and couldn't have been more disappointed. I won't mention any names. Henry Ross, <coughs> oh, Glenn Danzig, oh my God, fucking dicks. Um, you know, but like Nick and me were cool from the get. And it was a drug thing at first, but we both realized we had like the same interest in aberrant pathology and, and Nick became my homie. And Nick was really the one who encouraged me to write. You know, Nick was the one who told me he's never met anyone that uses English like me, like eloquent as a motherfucker, yet while being totally like street level, carny, you know, colloquial as shit at the same time. And Nick was always like, right, 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 right. And I just, you know, I did some fanzine writing for Carbon 14, and, you know, it's like, I was still too interested in being a fuck up. And eventually, like, Richmond ran its string for me. I took a female hostage from Ohio when I was out on the road with L7 and the Melvins. What do you mean you took a female I, I met a broad that liked to fix problems, and I had problems, so we were custom fit for each other. So I, fix the problem like you're like, in Yeah, take, take fucking care of me. Okay. You know, pay my rent and my bills, and, you know, give me pussy and feed me. And what did she get out of it? She got, you know, to be close to me. Right. The king of Philadelphia. <laughs> No, I mean, she was just a broad that liked, you know, to fucking take on problems. There's lots of chicks like that, you know, it's like, and like, and it got, and I'm, I'm in Columbus now. She makes me marry her. She basically tells me, if you want to stay, you got to marry me. And it, 
was the most viable option, so I did. Halloween, you know, 97, got married to Laura, and I'm in Columbus at this point, and we had a tumultuous marriage in the very Any baby bears? No, no. None that I didn't eat at birth. No, no, I never. I knew that. See, I didn't think too much about shit consequentially ever. I mean, I was just always just like diving into whatever pool I saw and hoping it wasn't too shallow that I broke my neck. Right. And like, but I always knew I couldn't have children. I shouldn't have children because I just didn't have the commitment. And I was also afraid that I would model my father's parenting whether I intended to or not. That maybe it would be genetic to just be a dad asshole, you know. And um, so, I imagine if you're using drugs, it's probably not the right, best time to right, have you know, a child anyway. And like, but I quit drugs when I got to Virginia. When I got out of Virginia, I left another drug void, a burned down life, just like I did in Philadelphia. Burned down my life on dope with dope in Philadelphia. Burned down my life with dope in Virginia found this woman willing to, as they say in the rooms of recovery, enable me. And like, I was like, my life is unmanageable. I'll get her to manage it. Like, but I didn't get a manager. I got a fucking warden and I chafed, you know? So like, we never meshed and eventually our marriage ended. I ended up on dope again. I mean, I've had the recurring problem with dope over three decades of my life. It's sad, but true because it's like, I mean, until you have your own personal epiphanies or find your spiritual, you know, it's like, it's, that shit is hard to fucking get, you know, it's like, if you got problems, it makes them seem better, you know, like, eventually your solution becomes your problem, and then you're truly, you know, ass, you know, you're fucked, you know, so I had the recurring dope thing, you know, and like, this brings us really close to the end of the Paul Bearer story, or till now, you know, my marriage ended. I, I had a fucking another bad dope run in Philly in 2000, you know, got clean and sober in 2000. You came back here? No, I mean in, in Columbus, right? Okay. I got clean and so I couldn't come back here. I mean, I would come back to visit, but like there were problems here at this point that I never tended to unserve, you know, legal things, you know, that I just wasn't capable of even handling because you know I couldn't handle shit you know so you know my wife leaves me I become a junkie I get sober you know I stay sober for a while I start booking shows again in Columbus you know I'm writing some in Columbus I have a regular column in one of the weeklies but like eventually I just tank out again because I don't realize all at all this time I've been dealing with a profound mental health issue as well. I've got clinical anxiety and depression. I've probably got un other things undiagnosed. I've also at this point had some medical trauma. I had a mini stroke in my 30s from speed. I had, you know, some head trauma, you know, some bad head injuries. From the accident? From different things. It falls. You know, I'm not exactly blessed with a Nijinsky-like grace or a cat-like fleetness of foot. Okay. You know? Like, as, as my ex-girlfriend Diane used to like to say about me, you know, vertically, you have some real problems, but horizontally, you're like fucking Barishnikov, man, you know? Which, which was her way of saying I gave her a good, thorough dick down, you know? You know? It's always nice when the ladies talk about you 
reverently, pinnally speaking. You know, not like, you got a small dick, comes too quick. Like, God, I hope I never hear that shit about me. Yeah, but anyway, so it's like, I eventually pull my shit back together in Columbus. I, I enter a recovery program and I, I do the best I can with it. I commit myself to it. I do manage to quit all drugs, everything, 100% clean and sober. What year is this? 95, 2005, you know, this, and, uh, and I'm doing the best I can. And I like being sober, I like the fact that my life is not problematic, but I feel empty, empty. Not saying I needed to get high, but I felt no creative urge anymore. I was just really, like, and they also put me on an antidepressant, which I also think just kind of neutralized me. I had no, like, folk, like, no emotional spectrum, just really flatlined. I mean, thank God it didn't quell my libido, because I'm not taking any boner blocker, no. I mean, I'll fucking walk around and fucking, blah, 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 you know, before you're, you're, you're killing my dick, you know. But anyway, so, eventually after five, six, almost seven years sober in a 12-step program, I just started having, I stopped taking my antidepressant for a couple of years and never had a problem. I started feeling really bad anxiety again. And I also had other medical problems. I had had a degenerating disc in my back that required fusion. I suffered a bad fall where I had, like I was knocked unconscious for several minutes, fell down a flight of steps. And like, and I just like, and all they want to do for is like, try this pill, try this pill, try this pill. And I love, had a love affair with pills, but I didn't want to get on fucking psychotropics to handle my anxiety. I just didn't like the idea of like a lifetime prescription, you know, of anything. And, and for my, I also had a foot condition. They're like, we'll get you in a pain clinic. And all pain clinics want to do is give you Vicodins. And, and I'm just like, fuck it. If you give me a script of Vicodin in a month, I'm on dope. I know me. So that's when I started smoking weed again. Like, weed was always my lover. And weed was always like, I love having weed around. I mean, makes me funny, makes me feel comfortable, makes me feel like... It's like a blanket for me. Like some people are like, oh man, I can't smoke weed. It makes me paranoid. I'm like, really? It makes me unparanoid, you know? Like, so I love the medicinal property of weed and it really took care of all my anxiety, took care of my, most of my foot pain, at least managed it. But what it really did for me is like, one day, you know, I'd been smoking weed for a while. I'm like, I'm gonna start writing again. I started writing. I went back to school. I decided I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to be a writer. I also decided I'm going to I'm going to do art. I'm going to make art. You know, I've never done anything. I'm like Beavis. You know, for me, art is like a stick figure with tits. You know, I'd been getting tattooed a lot, and I'd always been into art and people that did art, like the whole juxtaposed lowbrow art scene. And certain people in Philadelphia were in bands and doing cool art, like Brian Willette from Orifice, great artist. Judith Schechter, who dated one of the guys in Carnival Shame, 
amazing yeah. artist, you know. Elizabeth Mersh Fiend, great artist, you know. Like, I was always into punk art, and even before that, like, Rat Fink and comic books. So I decided that I was going to be an artist, and I was going to find, you know, my art. So I basically, my, my tattooist and a, a, another real mentor of mine, the late, great Sonny Tufts, rest in peace, um, he was basically, he was, he could, you know, he could tattoo and illustrate, but he started doing assemblages, like just found objects kind of just assembled together and juxtaposed, like like real shriny stuff, like build-ups. And that's kind of was, was my model. So I basically just started, you know, the best thing about Columbus, Ohio, and there's not a lot of best things about it, is like great thrift stores. So I just started finding all these weird things at the thrift stores and making these weird fusions, like assemblages and toys for kids in the post-apocalypse. And I started selling a bunch of them. I'm actually scraping by. Where were, you, where were you selling these? At flea markets and just to friends. Mm -hmm. And I start, like I do make little toys. Like I, I take like I do a lot of shit with dolls, like I'll crack a Barbie in half and put like her top half on a dinosaur and make a dino slut, a robo slut, prostabots, uh, smoking bug babies. These are my toys. You know. Is this your primary means of right income now, at this point? Well, I, well, getting back, I also really started, I decided I was going to start writing again and I just started writing stories and at this point I'd gone back to community college. I learned that like I hated it. I hated college going back as much as I did, but like, I'm also totally sober at this point. But then when I started college... You're still smoking pot though. Uh, no, I hadn't started that. When I first started going back to school, I was 100% clean and sober. Shortly thereafter, I started smoking weed again. And I found I could do community college on weed with no problem at all. I just fucking walked through it, you know? So, uh... Um, you know, I start writing. I take an English class at Columbus State and I meet a woman who's a good educator and she becomes a mentor to me and I submit some of my stories to her and she says to me, as long as you're in my class, you could just write, you could have an independent study, just write your stories, don't worry about my curriculum, as long as you're proactive, I'll carry you through these classes. And that's what I did for a year and a half. I started smoking weed again, and I really found my words. I really started, like, really writing, really, you know, I write like I talk. I mean, that was the real trick, finding a way to, like, write it like I speak it, because that's what people say, like reading my shit, sound, you know, they, they could hear my voice, you know, assimilate it, you know, like, and like, and that's what I did. I started writing these stories, and it's a-linear, it's a-linear, but it's basically the chronology, like a lot of the shit I told you today, you know, the punk rock, you know, the, the kid, you know, and there's lots of great weird stories in there, like Meat and Lobster Boy, Grady Styles, like it was you know, Lobster Boy. Lobster Boy was a circus freak that had, you know, whatever that disease is, where you know, you know, come, you know, something dactyly. I don't know. Lobster Boy was, you know, he met Lobster Boy was murdered by his wife. E. True Hollywood Story. Was Lobster Boy a part of a punk scene or something? No, he was or a side traveling okay, yeah, sideshow yeah, freak. But I'm just saying, like, right. that's what my. I'm just telling these crazy stories. Spaghetti wrestling, 
college stories have been like lots of tales of like revenge because I love revenge but I'm not the kind of guy that's going to come up and like hook you I'm going to do something gorilla sneaky well know? I wonder if you could talk about the the Gary Heidnick's House of Horrors oh, uh, EP uh, wow yeah that's interesting you should ask which about. I own uh, with the dirt did, did you bring it with you I'll no, sign it no, for my you brother, it's at my brother's house it's worth I think it's worth like close to a hundred bucks now if you want me to autograph it for you it'll be worth 50 then <laughs> i'll keep it where it is <laughs> but, but uh, no the story with the dirt was we had written the heidnik song it was a good song i mean i think the serial killers album has some great songs but suffers from my underdevelopment as a vocalist still you know and what a lot of records from that time just really thin production cheap sounding 80s sounding but that Heidnik single is for me my musical testimonial great song b-side great but we decided like I had gotten the idea from those like you'd see you ever see the you know, you're a gorehound remember like you'd see the ads in the old like famous monsters and like you, the necklace you could buy that was just a little plastic shitty yeah, coffin but it had dirt from drag yeah. Yeah, yeah so like that was the idea and Tim had already like because Tim was from Wisconsin Ed Gein was this patron saint of ours and they would sell like you know the wood samples you know like so we decided we were going to do this record with the dirt you know like that was going to be and the Heidnik thing it just broke maybe right. no maybe the Heidnik thing is, was pretty much it was news at this point but when we wrote the song he had already been captured jailed and convicted so when we went to get the dirt the house was still there but it was fenced up and you know it was a, still a crime scene you know they had they might have eventually torn it down but like basically me tim omen and our bassist at the time tom bates psychotic norman and well he was in throttle you know tom bates um we basically drove to marshall street at like four in the morning, hopped over the fence. More appropriately, it was probably like Tim and Tom hopped over the fence and they probably had to haul my near crippled ass over. Or maybe I stood on the outside, look and watch, you know, just ready for them to hand the bucket back over the fence. Yeah. You know, but like, you know, the, the yard is just like a fucking garbage heap, you know. So we're in there and it's like, and fucking dirt is fucking hard, man. And we got a five gallon paint bucket. Like, like we really needed five gallons of dirt, you know, but like, we, you know, and um, so we dug up the bucket of dirt and as we're digging it up, it's like, you know, this old black guy across the street, like jams his head out the window. He's like, what the fuck are you doing out there? And we're like, we're digging up some dirt. You know, I was like, get the fuck out of here if I call the police. And I'm thinking, Jeez, what a fucking brainstorm that is. Like, just a few months ago, Heidnik had retarded black hookers, like, chained up being electrified and fed to each other. Maybe that's when you should have called the cops, you know? And, like, we'd see Heidnik around. Like, Chuck will tell you, we'd see him, like, at Abe's. Yeah, Abe's Stakes, right? And, like, right. Part we'd, of see him, right, we'd see him cruise, you know, just kind of, like, weirding out at McDonald's over on 40th Street. That's why the line in the song, McDonald's. You know, and that was such a great song. I'm glad you brought that up. And we we decided we were going to release 500 singles with the dirt until we realized how goddamn fucking hard it was getting the dirt in those little glycine ziplocks. You can be like probably had a lot of those little bags right, around though, right? And like so, we basically decided we would do like 
350 with dirt. So there's some with dirt and some without dirt. But the, the truth is, and you know what? I'll lie to a motherfucker as soon as, you know, I feel like there's something to be gained from You'd it. You'd never do that to me, though, right? No, well, I mean, unless you had something I needed. Um, <laughs> but, like, the truth is, that Heidnik dirt was the genuine, bona fide, certified dirt from Gary Heidnik's yard. And before you even ask me the next question, yes, I was thinking about going to Cleveland and getting dirt from fucking... Ariel Castro's house. The other guy in Cleveland, the black guy, killed a bunch of people too. Like, I was gonna go get dirt from his house. But there's a metal band, Fistula, that got dirt from the fucking Cleveland serial killer's yard, and they put out a record with his dirt. And I wrote to the guy, I'm like, are you aware that my man's like, and he got really hostile with me. Like, hey, motherfucker, we didn't steal your ass. I was like, hey, dude, simmer down. It's like, imitation is the purest form. Should have copyrighted dirt. When you yeah. the I gave him shit, I, too, and he's like, oh, yeah, you guys invented punk rock, too. I was like, I was like, I was like, no, man, I'm, it's like, I don't care even if you did steal the idea from me. It's like, it's a good idea. But the best ideas are all pilfered, you know? The only original thought anymore is stupidity. If you want to do something smart, you know, just, you know, co-op someone else's genius. You know, I mean, that's pretty much sadly what happened to punk rock, too. It became a commodity. You know, the Warp Tour, you know, it's like, you know, hot topics. It's like, yeah, for me, it's like punk rock is definitely watered down. It's misunderstood. Most people that, like, say they're punks are just affixing a tag to themselves. It's like, punk is just not something you all of a sudden decide one day you become that. You don't go to Hot Topics to get your uniform, you know. You know, you don't, you know, you don't download, you know, the entire adolescence bad religion catalog, you know, and make a big MP3, you know, it's like, that shit wasn't punk, and it's not, you know. It's Any like, thoughts on Jazz Fusion? Which we've I mean, you know, blasted with for the last hour. I enjoy masturbation as much as the next guy, you know. <laughs> Sounds but, like a porn soundtrack. But you know, so that's you know, I still like. I mean, for me, punk. Like, I mean, I'm I'm 53 years old and I'm still fucking starving to death, you know, because I want to stay punk. You know, I mean, there's a fine line between buying buying in and selling out, and you know, it's like. And I decided to write my book. My book is now finished. It's called Skywriting at Night. It'll probably be out in a few months. And it's really lurid. It's really dark. It's puerile. It's not meant for nice people in any capacity. It's transgressive. It's all fuck. People are going to call me a racist. People are going to call me a, a, a misogynist. People are going to call me an anti-Semite. You know, they're not going to call me a homophobe because I've always loved the gays because John Waters is like my patron saint. Are they going to call you late for dinner? No, because, you know, I'll just go eat, you know, White Castle or something. No, that's, what, that's what's going on, you know. It's like, I mean, for me, punk rock, I sacrificed my sobriety, my sanity, and my serenity. And I would do it all fucking over again in a fucking heartbeat because it's like... I love what this movement, this cultural melange has done for me as a thinker, an artist, a, a, a quasi-human being, 
a socialite, a dandy, a cur, a conjurer, a cat, a carny, you know. Paul Bearer is fucking epic. And people are, you know, some people have figured that out, you know. It's like, it's really unbelievable. It's like, how many people just think I'm as awesome as I think I am? Some of them even think I'm more awesome than I think I am. But, you know, it's like, and I'm still friends with all these bands. I nurtured relationships with the dwarves, the super suckers, mud honey, you know, it's like, these are all my kin. And I, you know, thank God for the internet, you know, because that's really given me the vehicle to like, find people that were lost in my drug malaise. And, you know, it's like, and this has been a fucking grand and groovy life, man. And this is it, the one you got, go on, have a ball. So while you're here, enjoy the view, keep on doing what you do. As for me, I'll muddle through one day at a time. All right. Talk, looking you. flash and talking trash. Woo! Thank you very much, Paul. Thank Bear you, for, Joe. Uh, thank you. Uh, all right.